So we are back on the book of Romans. And this is actually the 33rd message in our series through Paul's magnum opus, if you will. And today we're going to continue through Romans 9 by, by opening up a really a pretty substantial set of scriptures. We're going to only look at a few of them today, but we're going to take it a little bit slow to get through it all. But we're going to do our best to simplify for you what comes across to most people as a very complex concept and a complex and loaded set of thoughts. And again, we're going to take it pretty slow over these next few weeks, uh, but there is a consistent thread through Romans 9 that I think often people don't notice, and we're going to, we're going to try to really focus our energy and the, uh, the majority of our attention on that thread. So just as a bit of a refresher for those of you who, uh, it's been a little while since we've been in this book, um, the book of Romans is broken up into four movements of thought. Four movements of thought. Romans 1 through 4 is all about how the, go- the gospel reveals God's righteousness. Then Romans 5 through 8, and we covered all these already, is how the gospel gives us new life, particularly. It's how it gives us new life in the Spirit. We're introduced to the Holy Spirit in Romans 5. Then Romans 9 through 11 is where we are right now. And the point of Romans 9 through 11 is all about how Jesus Christ is the Messiah. How Jesus Christ fulfilled God's promise, well, all of God's promises, to Israel. So throughout many of the writings of the prophets, there's this message of a coming Messiah, of of a coming king, one who will rise up, somebody in David's family line, and he will rise up on behalf of Israel, and he will ultimately rule the world. And in addition to that, in addition to all of these prophecies that you get throughout the Old Testament, there were all sorts of something called a covenant between God and Israel. Uh, over years and years and years, in each of these covenants, Israel just held so close to. One of them is the Ten Commandments, the, the, the covenant given at Mount Sinai, which, was, uh, which essentially was a marriage contract between God and Israel. We'll talk more about that in a couple of weeks. <clears throat> So that was a covenant that they held onto. Another one was the promise that was given to King David that from your seed will rise up a king that will reign forever. So the throne will always be in the family of David. That was, um, that was a covenant, of promise that they held very close to. Uh, in Jeremiah 31, we get the new covenant, um, which we've talked about a little bit. And we're going to look back at a few of those um, in the coming weeks as well as we really flesh out this, this section in Romans 9. But a major piece for the Apostle Paul, a major covenant, uh, and one that he references in Romans several times, was the covenant of parts. And the covenant of parts, and we, we have talked about this already, but what it is, is it's when God takes Abraham, and he shows him the stars, and he says, Abraham, can you, can you, you see the stars? And he's like, of course I can see the stars, they're everywhere. And he's like, can you count them? And and Abraham's like, no, God, of course I cannot count the stars. How could I? There's too many of them. And so then God tells Abraham, he says, he says, Abram, that, that will be your, your, so will it be your ancestors. You will be the father of many nations. You, you, we won't even be able to count them. It's going to be so many. Now, it's, not, it's, it's significant that it's not just one nation. It's actually many nations. Uh, and then what happens after that, um, in I know we've talked about this, but this is just a quick recap. It's he says, you'll be the father of many nations. And then God tells Abraham to go and get a bunch of animals. And then what happens is the Bible says Abraham goes. He already knows what to do. He gets these animals and he cuts them all in half. 
Because that's what you did in those days when you made a covenant with someone. Uh, what you do is you cut animals in two pieces and you create an aisleway, much like this aisleway right here that we have between the animal parts. So you have half the animal here, half the animal on the other half. And then what you do is both parties of the covenant then walk between the pieces of the, the aisles, the pieces of the animals, uh, declaring the words to the covenant, essentially saying, if I don't keep this covenant, may it be done to me as is done to these animals. May I be cut in pieces. Then, of course, God, knowing that Abraham was never going to possibly be able to keep this covenant, God knocks Abraham out. He says, you're not going to walk these pieces, dude. He knocks him out. You can read it for yourself in Genesis 15. It's, it's brilliant what he does. Then God himself shows up in the form of a smoking fire pot, which is the same way he shows up on Sinai. It's the same Hebrew word. He shows up himself in the form of a smoking fire pot, and then God himself walks the pieces, reciting the words to the covenant. Because that is the kind of God that we serve. One who's willing not only to walk the pieces himself, but is willing to do whatever it takes to make sure that we, his children, don't. To make sure we don't have to walk those pieces because he knows we could never keep it. Our God loves us so much that he literally says that there is nothing that we can do that can separate us from the love of God. That is how Paul ends Romans, Romans 8. Nothing can separate you from that love. He says that even when you're not faithful, he will be faithful. That's Romans 3. And that's really where this whole thing is leading. It's exactly where Paul leaves us off in Romans 8, but nothing can separate us. And now that same reality, Paul is applying to Israel here in Romans 9. He's saying, Israel, God loves you all so much. He kept his promise to you. He, he did it. He kept it. And even though Israel could never keep the covenant, it was God and God alone in the person of Jesus Christ who ultimately was torn to pieces. And it is humanity who now can be justified. In justification, just as a quick recap, it means that God declares you righteous. It means that because of what Jesus did, God, when he sees you, he doesn't see you as a sinful person anymore. He sees the glory of Jesus Christ. He sees Jesus when he sees you. So because of that, he can say that person is right. That person is just. That person, that person is righteous. That is good news. That is the good news. That is the gospel. But here's the issue that's facing Israel as we come into Romans 9, which Paul is addressing here and trying to even anticipate some of these questions that they'd be asking. See, they're thinking in their minds, okay, if the gospel of Jesus Christ is true, if Jesus, if Jesus truly is the Messiah, what does that mean for us? Because we killed him. We killed him. Not to mention he died. The Messiah can't die. Messiah was supposed to be a political figure, someone who uh, brought the whole world to its knees. Jesus was the opposite of every single thing that they had expected and they had anticipated and they had waited for. And so here they are, still waiting for Messiah, and as they're waiting for him, they've missed him. And so Israel's going, well, then did the word of God fail? Was it all a lie? 
See, we, we saw it going this way, one particular way, and in the end it went another way. Has the word of God failed? You know, I, I know for many of us, we think a lot of similar thoughts to that. Has, has it failed? God, have you failed? Where, God, where are you? Has the word of God failed me? Have the promises returned void? We, we really felt like God was saying, move to this place, start this church, do this thing, take this job, give that gift, help that person, be generous in that way. And we assume that because we are obedient to the word, it automatically means that it's all going to work out the way that we envision things working out. And when we find ourselves down the road, many of us find ourselves asking questions like this, has the word of God failed? Where were you, God? You know, where were you when my mom got sick? Where were you? Where are you now? I mean, you guys know a story of our niece. God, where are you as our niece is holed up in a hospital in Ann Arbor, waiting and hoping and believing that at one point a heart transplant will come because she has to have a heart transplant. Where are you, God? It's been almost a year. Are you going to do that thing you do where you make all things new and radically intervene and save the whole day? And then in the cases that it doesn't happen, we're sitting here like, where were you? You said, I, I know you said you'd come, but where were you? And, and like we said already in, in this study, it can be very easy for us to see the ways that God is moving because he isn't moving exactly the way that we assumed that he would. But when you look at it in hindsight and you see the bigger story, you realize Abraham didn't walk the pieces which means Israel wasn't on the hook for them. So Israel's not ripped apart when they don't keep the covenant, but God did walk the pieces. And of course, when it was broken, because it always is, God was ripped apart on Calvary, at the cross, on the cross of Calvary. So here what we have is we have Paul telling Israel, he's like, you guys, God did show up. Maybe you didn't see it going the way that it went, but he was there, he did show up. He showed up. He did what he promised. Messiah did come, and it's not too late for you. I know it didn't happen the way that maybe you thought that it was going to, or the way that you wanted it to, but if you give it a chance, you'll see. The good news is even better than you ever imagined it. So with that, we're going to read Romans 9, verses 6 through 13, and then from there we're going we're to just kind of explore this some more. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, unlike Abraham, who had two different, who, who had two different children with two different wives, it was, they, were, they both were between Rebekah and Isaac. When Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac Though they were not yet born 
and had done nothing, either good or bad, this is very significant, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. And then he quotes the book of Malachi when it says, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So earlier this week, I picked up the kids from school. And as we pulled up to our house after picking up the kids from school, there was a brand new black trash can in front of my house. And I'm like, I see this trash can. I'm like, that's kind of weird. What's this trash can doing in front of my house? I'm wondering what it's doing there. And my daughter, Fiona, she couldn't contain herself. She burst with excitement because she knew the secret that she said, Mommy ordered you a new trash can. It was a surprise, surprise. So a little bit of backstory. When we first moved into our house, our house, I mean, we're still like so under construction, but it is getting better and better. But we, we gutted the entire house. And we weren't the people who wanted to like pay for the huge haul away of the, you know, it cost like two, it'd be like two, three thousand dollars to haul that trash out. We're tearing off all these walls. And I don't think this is actually legal, but what we were doing was we were taking all of the debris and we were putting it in trash bags. And then we had like 50 trash bags and we'd, do, we'd fill trash cans up as much as we can and just put them out in the streets uh, each trash time. So our, and our neighbor knew we were doing this. And so he said, hey, I have an extra trash can. I'll give you one and you can fill up the trash and then you can get it out twice as quick and then over the course of like nine months we got rid of all those bags. But we still were filling up the trash bags with just normal trash because we have a large family. Uh, and he didn't actually use it. It was just the spare trash can that he had sitting there and he didn't ever use it. But what would occasionally happen was, we would, was I would bring the trash cans out and I'd put them in the road and then the next trash day is, is Monday. So I put them out Sunday night and then Monday night would come and I will have forgotten to go bring the trash cans back into my house. And so my neighbor, who didn't need the trash can, he tells me he doesn't need it, he sees sometimes that I leave this can out in the road and he doesn't like that and so to punish me, he goes and he takes the can and he puts it back in his yard because it's his trash can. He can do that if he wants. He, can, he, he gives and takes away, whatever he wants to do. So he, he goes, he takes the trash can, he puts it back in his yard. And he makes me ask him about getting it back. He, he doesn't use it, he doesn't need it. And he, honestly, he's an awesome guy, so I don't want to like talk bad. I'm just trying to use this as an illustration. Um, he's actually very generous and very helpful to our family, but just it's one of these things where he's like, there's got to be a lesson. You can't leave the trash can out. So I'm going to put it on the side of my house, and you are going to have to humble yourself and come and ask me to use the trash can again if you want it. And we use it every single week. Otherwise, we have too much trash. He always gives it back. He, doesn't, he knows he doesn't need it. He's just trying to, he's trying to teach me a lesson. And we, we, we really do. We go through a lot of trash in a week. So Dawn wanted to surprise me. And so she ordered me a new trash can. And I text her, and I, said, I, 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 and I said, is this for me? She's like, yes, this is for you. And I'm like, I don't know why, but I feel really loved by this move, this trash can thing. Like, why? I felt really loved by it. She's like, you should feel loved because you, you are loved. But see, now, if I leave the trash can in the road for a few hours... Maybe longer than I can. It's still our trash can. That dude would be not doing the right thing if he came and he, I mean, he could still steal our trash can, but it's not his trash can to now take and put beside his house. I can fill up our own trash can, put it out, and if I have to leave it out till Tuesday, I can leave it out till Tuesday. And if I mess up, it's not going to get taken away from me. 
It belongs to me. Well, to us. It belongs to our family. It probably belongs to her. It's probably in her name exclusively with the government. I don't know how those things register. See, most of us live our lives thinking that everything God promised us is like that. He's just as quick to take it back as he was to give it to us. Like, it's something that we can lose just as easily as we gained it. And so, so for Israel in these moments, they seem to be thinking, well, if the gospel of Jesus Christ is true, then we missed it, and that means we lost it. It's gone. We don't have it anymore. But Paul is over there saying to him, no, 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 the gospel is true, and it's good news even for you. And now you don't have to live your whole life going back to the priest because every single year you sin and sin and sin and sin. No, Jesus, he did that once and for all. So all this stuff that you have traditionally built your lives around, Jesus actually said, we're going we're gonna to end it. We're going to make this a lot more simple. And it's good news even for Israel. Romans 10.4. Uh, we're going to get to it in, our, in like a full teaching of it, but it's, it's considered to be the culminating moment of Romans 9 through 11. So you kind of got to run everything on both sides of it through 10.4. And this is what Paul says. He says, um, Christ is the end. He is the telos. He is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So every word from 9 to 10.4 and from 10.4 through 11 particularly, all Sometimes we're going to read things and they're going to seem to say something a little different than this. Uh, that's why we teach and explain things. But we run it all through this. This is the point. He, it, the, the, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. Christ is, in Greek, it's the word telos. It's kind of an eschatological word. Uh, it's a word that we use when we ask, okay, where is this whole thing headed? Where are we going with this? What's the point? Where is it ultimately leading well, Paul tells us the telos of the law is Christ. It's the end. He's the end of it. The thing that this has all been going toward the whole time, it's Jesus. The law, for a period, did serve as a standard by which we determined righteousness, or at least tried to determine it amongst ourselves for the people of Israel. But everyone always fell short of that standard, and now it's faith. And it, it, it's always been faith, according to what happened with Abraham, but it's belief in and devotion to Jesus now that actually determines our righteousness. So he, he, Christ is the end of it. Now, but because there's a lot of loaded lines in this whole passage, in this whole set of scriptures, I first wanted to show you this because I want you to know this is where it's all going. And then I, but then I also want us to take a little bit of time to go through these passages, and here's why. A lot of people have read Romans 9, 10, and 11, and they've drawn very different conclusions about these passages. Just for instance, uh, the Expository Times gives this report. It says, Augusti Augustine, I, keep, I, say August I say Augustine, and in college they say Augustine, or uh, uh, what is it, how do you say it? Whoever knows how to say that guy's name, I don't care, but it's Augustine, Aquinas, and Calvin have found in this passage one of the main supports of their doctrine of double predestination. Not just predestination, double predestination. Like this, is, this guy is double predestined. Oregon, uh, Chrysostom, and Arminius have used it to confirm their belief that man's destiny rests on his own free response to God's grace. That's the exact opposite of double predestination. And the Universalists have seized on it as one of the few biblical texts which gives grounds for belief in universal salvation. And the irony, this is the Expository Times writing, not me, the irony is that all have been sound in their affirmations, though grievously at fault in their failure to appreciate the strength of the other two positions. 
So there are three totally opposing views that people get their footing in and they, and they support their positions by way of Romans 9 through 11. Now, in case you are wondering just what double predestination is, well, it, it's, believe it or not, it's actually the, probably the most common view of Romans 9. Um, and what it essentially is saying is that God handpicked in advance a certain group of people who are going to be saved and a certain people, group of people who are going to be damned to hell for eternity. Now, we do not believe that view, okay? That is not the view of us. But that is probably the most common way people view it, which is why we dive into scriptures like this because they're super loaded and complicated and people say all sorts of twisted, weird things by them. That is not what we believe. But these scriptures are some of the ones that are used to defend that position, so it's worth looking at them and kind of trying our best to see what is Paul doing here. And as you all know, our... Uh, one of our core values is conversation. We always have conversation. And this is a passage that there's been a lot of conversations about among scholars. Um, and we've had a lot of them here. But what we are quite certain of is that Paul is telling Israel, the word of God has not failed. It has not failed. The promises to you are still true. And you still have a purpose in the promises. So, Romans 9 through 11, just the structure-wise, it begins with a lament, and it ends with praise, and, and kind of in the middle of it, Paul's working to answer this question, all sorts of questions that Israel, he's anticipating Israel to be asking. And what he does is he uses their story to yet again tell the story of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. So there's a very significant hermeneutical concept uh, that we are going to have to make sure we understand in order to do these next three weeks and how we're going to handle Romans 9. Uh, and that is the concept of typology or a type. A type in the Old Testament is something that actually points to something else. And that something else, of course, is Jesus and God's redemptive plan for humanity, for mankind. It's a prophetic symbol. Now, this is nothing new to you guys. We maybe use different language, but we've talked about these things a million different times. We've shared tons of them with you because they're really, really helpful in understanding some of the challenging parts of the Old Testament. See, we read a story in the Old Testament often, particularly the ones that are really, really violent, and we, we say, why would it be that way? Why would it say that? Why would God do that thing? And if you have nothing to point to, that thing can seem very, very strange. But when you understand the whole story, which is what type does, and you understand the purpose for telling the story, it begins to make a lot more sense. So for example, the book of Hebrews explains that the entire sacrificial system in the Old Testament was a type. And Christ's one sacrifice did the work that a thousand dead animals could never accomplish. Paul, earlier in Romans, tells us that Adam is a type of Jesus. He's a type of Christ. We walked you through Romans 6 uh, with the imagery of baptism and how, um, and how uh, the way the exodus and the parting of the Red Sea and the water coming down on the Egyptians who had oppressed and held captive the Israelites that entire time for 430 years was in essence a type of baptism. And people say, well, why do you think that? Well, we, well, we know that that's true because 1 Corinthians 10, Paul literally says they were baptized in the Red Sea into Moses. It's literally, it explains it in other places. 
So, they, so what happens is they're baptized into this new way to be human on the other side of the water. The Egyptians are, are the, are the, are the uh, oppressor, the life they don't want anymore, the life they've left behind, and now Israel is completely free of that, and they're walking in freedom on the other side of the water. Now, what this concept means for us today is that when we read some of these stories and even some of these specific statements that become a bit hard to swallow, statements like, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. And statements like, what we'll read next week, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Big statements. A lot of implications. If you read these as individual accounts of something that happened to someone, it becomes very hard to reconcile. Because our, our Western minds think individual salvation. We think this must mean this person was condemned. And that doesn't seem fair to us. But Hebrews did not read stories like that at all. That is not at all what it's actually trying to say. And Paul clearly did not view it that way. Which is part of why we can throw out that whole double predestination weirdo stuff. But when you read it as a type, something that's pointing to a bigger truth in Christ, it begins to make more sense. So there are several stories that we, we read a couple and we're going to read several more in the next couple of weeks that Paul draws from to explain the story of Israel. Those examples are the story of Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau. Then he gets into, we'll talk next week on Moses and the hardened heart of Pharaoh, which leads to the Exodus. Then he gives the example of the potter and the clay, which is a, uh, uh, taken from Isaiah and then also Jeremiah. Um, and that really brings a lot of this together, um, particularly the hardened heart thing. Then Paul will take us to Hosea and Isaiah. And that's kind of what's coming in a little while. But first, what he does is he goes back to the very beginning of Israel, the founding of Israel. And that first covenant that I already walked you through briefly uh, today with the walking the pieces, that first covenant with Abraham, which said, you will be the father of many nations. And I'm going to do this to prove that I'm in it for the long haul. Then, he takes, then Paul takes us through this early history of Israel and explains that Isaac, Abraham's son, was the child of promise. That's the way that Paul puts it here, and that's the way that it's explained in Genesis. He's the child of promise. Abraham does have another son with another woman. It was not his wife, uh, because Abraham, he has this lapse in judgment, lapse in faith in God. God makes him this promise, and then God, basically the promise is I will do the impossible, and then Abraham takes the matters in his own hands. He says, if God, if you're going to give me a son, I can't sleep with my wife because she's 90 years old, she's barren, she, her womb is dead. So he thinks, I'll go sleep with Hagar and we'll get Ishmael. And then that's where Ishmael was conceived and born. Now, you want to talk about Israel not keeping the covenant. That moment when God walked the pieces is Genesis 15. The very next chapter, Abraham goes and sleeps with Hagar. One chapter after God did that, he proved that he would do it, Abraham breaks it already. That's how, that's how human how dumb humans are. That's how stupid we are. But the child of promise, the child that God promised was Isaac. And Isaac was a child with his wife Sarai. Now, suddenly, you have to catch this, a barren womb gives birth. A dead womb gives birth, which is a type of resurrection. Same thing. You say, where do you get that? You get that from Romans 4. Paul tells us in Romans 4, that's what this was. This was resurrection. This is pointing to the resurrection. It was a miracle pregnancy. What other miracle pregnancies do we have? 
Isaac is the son that Abraham is actually willing to put on the altar to sacrifice. And thank God, God sends a lamb instead. He says, don't do that. Do this instead. But there's parallels even to that story. It's very, very significant. But what Paul is saying here in Romans 9 is just because you're born of Abraham does not mean you're Israel. But only if you're born of the promise. And what he says is the promise is available to everyone. To all who believe. Now the promise, of course, is not just a son. Because just because you're born to... Uh, just because you have a son, that doesn't mean the whole thing's going to come together. He's, it wasn't just that you're going to have a son. It was that you're going to have a great nation. Actually, many nations will come from you. And though Isaac was kind of that miracle evidence of the promise, it was ultimately Jesus who brought the whole thing to completion. The whole point was it was impossible, and God did the impossible, and here we are with this, this family. God did the impossible with this family, and he'll do it again, and he did it again, and again, and again. Now, The second example is the example of Jacob and Esau. This is very significant. Paul says that before they were born, Rebekah was told the older would serve the younger. And the point in doing that, Paul says, he makes it very clear, is that they would be very clear that it is not by works. It's by grace. It's by the grace of God who calls people to himself. Now this is a very big one for people. Because what it says is, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. Big concept. And we'll we'll try to unpack this a little for you. First, it needs to be noted, when you read, especially the New Testament, Esau is spoken of very harshly by the New Testament writers. They don't say a lot of nice things about him. At at one point, the writer of Hebrews says he has a root of bitterness. He has this anger uh, from when his brother stole everything from him. Uh, In fact, the rabbis say he's one of the most hated men in the entire Bible. But the thing that's really strange about that is when you read the, when you actually read the Old Testament, Esau was actually a really pretty decent dude. He showed grace, he was generous, and quite frankly, he was a way better person than Jacob was. But one of the things that happened between Jacob and Esau was Esau came home hungry one day. And, he, and, and Jacob had made this delicious stew, and Esau comes home, and he's starving, and, he's, and he says, I want some stew. And Jacob says, I'll give you the stew if you give me your birthright. So he sells his birthright for a bowl of, the Bible says, red stew, which the writer of Hebrews comes down really hard on him for that one, because it's dishonorable to his family, and actually it led to a lot of harm that would eventually be done to Israel. So the soup is red, very significant. And it says that Esau's name was then changed to Edom. Now, Edom means red. That's literally what it means. Now, put this into contrast, okay? Jacob would later go on to wrestle God. And God would rename him. Do you know what they rename him? Israel, which means to wrestle with God. And then Israel, then Jacob, Israel's descendants would continue to bear that name. They are Israel. That's even what Paul says. They are Israel. And of course, they're forever wrestling with God. Esau's descendants, on the other hand, go on to be called Edom. The Edomites, a people group who, uh, uh, that were established on this incident of dishonoring your father and giving up your birthright for a bowl of red stew. And the nation of Edom 
would then attack Israel, God's chosen people, many, many, many times. So by the time the writer Malachi, which is who Paul's quoting here, writes this and says, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, he'd had hindsight to see the damage that had been done to Israel by Edom, by Esau's people. So that's one way to explain it, but it's actually even bigger than that. First of all, in Hebrew, to hate something does not mean what it means to hate something today. When you get married, you marry the person you love. And when you do that, you are choosing that person. Now, to the Hebrew, what happens is you, you get married, you choose the person you love, and then you then choose to hate everybody else. You choose to, by way of default, do anything that will distract you from your love, you hate, which essentially means you reject it. You, you, you don't give it, there's just, there's no room for it. There's no room, you, you put it aside. You reject it. So you could read it, Jacob I loved, but Esau I rejected. Some commentators are a little nicer than that, and they say, Jacob I loved, Esau I didn't love as much. Something along those lines. But it's, it's not a burning hatred, first of all, or some spiteful, wrathful characteristic of God who's just waiting to pour his vengeance out on this guy who ate stew. This is more, I, I choose Jacob. And it's not, I choose Jacob to come to heaven with me, but I'm going to send Esau to burn forever, which is the, the double predestination way, okay? It's not that, as many think. What it is saying is, I am choosing Jacob to be the one whose family I use to carry out my redemptive purposes for the world. Now, here's what makes this so over-the-top powerful. For how bad of a rap as Esau actually got... He did a lot of amazing things. He was a really gracious dude. And I dare say to you that in the story of Jacob and Esau, the type of Christ in the story is Esau. And hopefully this helps you answer this question. Remember, when we are in Romans 8, Paul tells us Christ is the firstborn. And we talked about, we went from there to talk about how the firstborn gets what? The firstborn gets justice, secondborn gets mercy. So even when a secondborn would do something wrong, if they took off, they didn't take responsibility, they didn't own up to it, and they left, then we could find them, then what would happen was the punishment would then go to the firstborn. So of course we see how that played out for humanity with Jesus as the firstborn. But Esau, of course, he's the firstborn. The Bible says that Jacob grabbed his heel as he came out because he wanted to be the firstborn, but he couldn't be, even from his mother's womb. But remember what else Paul says. The older shall serve the younger. The son of man came not to be served, but to serve. And because Esau was also the firstborn, he automatically got something called the birthright, which we just talked about. It was stolen from him. It was, it was, it was, I'm sorry, it wasn't stolen from him. He sold the birthright. But he also got something called the blessing. And the blessing was stolen from him. Do you guys know how? What happened was Isaac, by the time, was very basically blind, couldn't see at all. And what Jacob did was he dressed himself like, I, like, like Esau, put on Esau's clothes, made himself look to be Esau, and then, and then he convinced his father Isaac that he was Esau. So if you're to look at this and see who the types are here, we have Isaac in this story kind of as the God figure. Then we have Esau is the Jesus figure, which I'll show you, and Jacob is the humanity figure. He's us. 
who Jacob, us, is now able to wear the clothes of his brother who actually deserved the blessing and received that blessing that rightfully belonged to Esau. Jacob, the worst of the brothers, received the blessing while Esau got the curse. Because when Isaac saw Jacob, he saw Esau. And he gave him the blessing that was rightfully owed to Esau. Years later, Jacob had been running. He's wandering, he's running. He gets a message that Esau is coming for him with 400 men. He's terrified. Jacob knows what he deserves. He knows what should happen. He knows what he had done. But what does happen is very different than what should happen to a person who stole, stole literally everything from his brother and left him with the rubble of life. So Jacob hears he's coming and he says, what do I do? What, what can I do to m- make this right? What can I give him? Is there something I can give him? He's us. He's scrambling, looking at his life, going, I screwed up this whole thing so stinking badly. God is going to come down on me. He's going to crush me. I'm finished. Oh, wretched sinner. But Esau just runs to Jacob. He embraces him, and he kisses him. He takes his brother, and he says, you're my brother. You're not, I don't treat you like someone who betrayed me. Firstborn gets justice. Secondborn gets mercy. It's a type. It's a type that points to the gospel. And when you hear, Jacob, I loved, but Esau, I hated, what you should be hearing is hints of you and I, sinners loved by God, and Jesus, perfect, blameless, taking what we deserve and giving us everything that he deserves, clothing us in his righteousness while he takes the curse. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might be called the righteousness of God. It is the perfect explanation of justification. That is one of the major themes in Romans, is justification means that you are declared righteous. You are literally, when God makes his judgment of your righteousness, he looks at you and his declaration is that you are right. And the only reason he does that is because Christ, who knew no sin, was sin on your behalf. So now when God sees you, he sees Jesus. That is justification. So what's the point of all this? Jacob I loved. Esau I hated. It's upside down. It's backwards. It's paradoxical. It is that way, but it shouldn't be that way. Because Jacob deserved judgment, but he got mercy. It's scandalous. Paul in 1 Corinthians 1.23 says that the gospel is scandalous to the Jews. It's a stumbling block, another translation puts it, to the Jews. And it's just straight foolishness to the Gentiles. Because it's not what the Jews expected it to be, and it's way too good for the Gentiles to be true. It's unfair. Yet all of the mercy lands on the second born, which as we've already read in, in, in Romans, that's us. That's humanity. Jesus is the firstborn, so we can come after. You have to read Romans 9 as a continuation of Romans 8. And now Paul is answering a very specific question that the Jews are asking. He's saying, did we miss it? Are we out now? Is this now a a Gentile gospel at the expense of all the Jews? And Paul's saying, using their stories, 
no, 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 no. It's always been this way. And it's not too late. The gospel is true for everyone. And it's available to all who believe. But there's a message in there to Israel that should mean as much to us today as it hopefully did to them in that day. Because they're over there and they're all worried that God didn't show up and that the word of God failed. Well, the word of God did not fail. But in Romans 3, it tells us very clearly and very specifically that the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God with the message of hope and, and the message of spreading that hope to all creation, the mission, it's a mission you're given. When, you, when you're entrusted with something, it means you're given it for the sake of taking it somewhere. It's a message. And, and God trusted them to carry that message to all the world because all the world is dying. People are hurting. People are broken. People are lonely. People are confused. People are angry and they're lost. And it'd be very easy for Israel to spend all their time worried that God did not show up in the way that they expected him to. And in doing so, they themselves fail the mission that he gave them to carry out on behalf of the world. Which, look, what does it say? It says, what if some of them were unfaithful? They were. Does that nullify the faithfulness of God? No, it, it doesn't. God is still faithful. I'll close with this story. One of our, our missionary friends... Uh, his name is Trent Roberts. Uh, he tells this story about the first Assemblies of God missionary to ever go to Tibet. Uh, his name is Victor Plymeyer. And some of his journals were included in a book that his son wrote about him called uh, High Adventure in Tibet. And in one of those journals, he talks about how they were on this mission and he had him and his wife and their son, their young son, and uh, they prayed for help on their mission, but nobody came to help them. And his wife and his young son, they both got sick. And they, it wasn't that big of a deal. It shouldn't have been. They, they could just get a little treatment. They'd be okay. So they prayed for help. And nobody came. And both of them died. And in writing, in fleshing out what had happened on paper, he's wrestling with God, just like Israel did, just like Jacob did. And he says, God, I asked you. I prayed for something to come. You sent us here. We needed someone to listen to your voice, and they didn't come. And now I'm all alone. I lost my son. I lost my wife. And he asked this question. He didn't ask if the word of God failed. He, he asked, who failed? Who failed? Who heard and didn't respond? Now, this is the first missionary to ever take the gospel to a place that had likely never heard it before. And he would then go on to continue to minister. Uh, in, even after this mission cost him everything, he, he went on and continued on. It took him 16 years before he saw his first convert for Jesus Christ, before the first fruit actually began to take shape from the work that he was doing. Yet he kept going because he knew the word of God did not fail, and he's not about to be the one that fails. It's quite possible the people of God failed, but the Word of God didn't. It's quite possible that somebody didn't listen, but he was going to listen. He was not going to fail those people that he was called to. 
I remember being at this forum and hearing Trent tell that story, and then at another forum, and he also told the story there too. It seemed like a recurring theme for him. It really impacted him about, because he told the story of how when he read that, he was so determined, I'm not going to ignore the voice of God at the expense of someone else. And him just reading that story, knowing in his heart somebody failed, helped him to determine it's just too big to ignore this thing. And it caused him to become a missionary himself. The word of God has not failed. It's not failed me. It's not failed you. The church of God may have failed you, but God's promises are still firm. They're still good. He still loves you and he'll redeem you. But, but he did it for a purpose. Even with Jacob and Esau, Esau spared Jacob. He ran to him. He hugged his neck. But you know what? Jacob left that place and he kept going and he was, he was still Israel. From him came a great nation. It wasn't just grace for one man. It was grace for a man to then create a people who would then be the mission of God and the mission would move forward. It was grace for a person who would be a part of carrying out the mission of God. And he didn't take it back from him the moment that Jacob failed. Jacob failed a whole bunch. Jesus doesn't hide the trash can that he loaned us when we leave it in the street for too long. We get to keep it. And that's a good thing because there's a lot of trash to take out. There's a lot of work to do. And in this season, in life, in our world, in paranoia, and people are scared, and they're, they're scared of a virus, and they're scared about an election, and nervous, and they're worried about an economy, and they're uneasy about the future. May we, the church, rise to the occasion. Because in the same way that Israel was entrusted with the oracles of God, we have been entrusted, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, with the ministry of reconciliation. Reconciling the world back to Jesus Christ, who already did the hard part to die for us. Firstborn gets judgment. Secondborn gets mercy. May we become people of mercy for we've been shown so much of it. May we be people who meet others right where they are and carry hope to the impossible situations. May we carry Jesus to the places and the people who have never even heard his name, wherever that might be, and shine lights where there's only darkness. The word of God has not failed. May it never be asked when speaking about us who ignored when that same word spoke to our hearts, because the word of God is more than just the Bible, he can speak to your heart. After all God did for us, may it never be said of us, who failed? Why didn't you listen? Why didn't you go? The word of God has not failed. God, when your promise feels like it failed, when your word feels like it failed in our lives, it's a very real feeling. It's been happening for thousands of years. And God, we recognize that feeling. How life can get there. But it's not true. And God, we give it back to you. 
And we proclaim today that your word and your promises, they will not fail. And God, we ask you today to give us hope. Give us faith to believe that you're not going to let us go, that you're not done with us, that you won't forget about us. Because Jesus did. The whole thing. And now you can scoop us up, love us, and make us whole. God, today we tell you, we release to you where the promises feel like they've failed. And we tell you, we proclaim, we trust you and we love you. And we're leaning into those promises today. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. It didn't fail, guys. I know it feels like that sometimes or all the time or you feel like you can't quite get a grasp on what are you doing, God? It's, it's still out there. It's, it's this, I've been describing it lately as this suspension. We'll talk next week or the week after about how God hardened Pharaoh's heart. That was a suspension of the will of God, and it seems hard. It seems difficult. It seems like, why is all this happening to me? Why is life this way? Life is really hard sometimes or all the time. When's it going to give? Something's got to give, right? That's what we say when we get so just, life just beats us up. But he's suspending. And he can suspend the heart of Pharaoh so that you can break free. God has got his hand. I mean, that's what the rest of this talks about, guys. I encourage you to go home and read chapter 9 because it's just... God didn't fail. He's still got you. Look at how faithful he's been and how many times it looks like he failed, but he actually didn't. And when you look at the, we call this the meta-narrative, the bigger story, the bigger picture. When you look at the bigger picture and you step back from all of scripture, the Israelites can't say God failed because he's been faithful and he's been faithful and he's been faithful and he's been faithful and he's never ever missed a beat. And he'll do the thing that he needs to do to get the job done. Because the end, yes, the telos is Jesus. But Jesus, the end, one more step, the telos is wholeness. You are the people. Just real quick, I want to look at what Paul does in the very, very beginning of this. For I could wish that I myself were a curse, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. What is he even talking about? So I want to be separated from Jesus. I don't want, to, I don't want this salvation thing. I don't want the cross so that you can have it. Kind of, but no. There's something bigger happening. He's actually quoting, or not quoting, sort of paraphrasing what Moses does in Exodus 32, 32. And I'm going to read that to you right now really quickly. And then we'll get out of here. Exodus 32, 32. 
and, and, and basically Moses like gives the people like the Ten Commandments and the rule of God and all these things like you can be whole, right? Okay, this is how we let God be our God and then we'll be his people. And then they just kind of screw it all up. And life's a mess. And this is what's happening to the Israelites. For some reason, they're all, this journey of the Israelites that's supposed to be this nation of all nations, they're scattered everywhere. Nobody knows who the Israelites are, and they're not even allowed. They've been in exile, which means they've been kicked out of their hometown. Imagine if you were kicked out of your home today and could never, ever go back. But God promised you to have a mansion or a big nation, or in Detroit, you will live and your family will, will thrive. Imagine where, how confused you'd be. So here he's, he's, basically talking about what Moses is talking about, but now if you will forgive their sin, they sinned, they were a mess, they were supposed to be the people, and Moses is like, I quit, I quit, I can't lead these people. I can't follow, God, what you're trying to do because it's not working because the people aren't doing what the people should be doing. Forgive their sin. If, if you can't, blot me out from the book which you have written. I quit. I don't even want into heaven. I don't want part of this plan anymore, God. I want out. Do you feel that way in life sometimes? It's real. Don't hide it. We all get there. And God said to Moses, whoever sinned against me, basically I'll take care of them, I'll blot them out, whatever. But now, go. Lead the people where I told you, and my angel will go before you. God has an army that we don't see. He also has an army that we are part of. He's going before you. He's doing the work so that when it feels like you want out of this crazy life you live, he's making a way. He's suspending the thing that's making it impossible for you to do whatever it is you're supposed to do. Paul goes on to talk about how we are vessels of mercy. Jesus received mercy so that we could contain the mercy and give it to others, encounter people and give mercy. And his angels are going before you so that you then can be as Jesus was and be a vessel of mercy. Go. It's going to be okay. Though today might not be your best day, there are better days tomorrow and the next day. And it might get hard in there, but it's going to be better. It's going to be better. And when it's really, really difficult, he's got you. He'll suspend the thing that's making it hard for you to do life. He loves you and he'll go before you.